Hey everyone, just want to make a quick comment about this video. Typically on my channel, I share things about children's ministry and child discipleship. This sermon that I'm sharing with you is a little different. It came from personal study. It's an overview of Genesis 1 through 3. And the reason I'm sharing it is because a lot of the topics and issues I cover in this sermon are what kids are facing in our world today. And so I thought it'd be good to share this. That way it can give you a biblical perspective on how to think through these things and how to respond to the issues you face. And so I pray that this message is a blessing and that it will be a help to you as you minister to kids. God bless. I'm going to tell you, probably my favorite time of the day is the few hours Sammy and I get after the kids have gone to bed. And it's not like we do anything extravagant. It's just that quiet time of the night where we relax, catch up, maybe watch a show. And one thing we've been doing recently in the evenings is we're watching a show called Psych. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the show. Uh, but Psych, if you haven't watched it, follows this guy by the name of Sean Spencer. And Sean is like a modern, more goofy Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he is, has really good observational skills, and he's great at taking those observations and making good deductions based off them. And he's so good with his observations that people think he's psychic. And he's built this up so much that he starts a psychic agency, detective agency, called Psych. Hence the name of the TV show. And Sammy and I have watched this show so many times now, we've kind of caught on to the flow of every episode. And every single episode, what happens is Sean observes something really small. And at first you think that what he sees, it, it's disconnected, it's random, it has nothing to do with anything. But as the episode goes on, you see, oh man, not only does that random thing he saw in the beginning actually play into the episode, it makes sense of everything that's going to take place. It ties it all together. And Sammy and I have watched this show so many times now that we're able to pick up on those things even before Sean does. We'll say, oh, you know what? We saw this scene. I bet that comes into play later in the episode. And sure enough, it does. And it's amazing how if you make key observations in the beginning, what arises in the story. And you know, the Bible is an amazing story right? It's a book. It's an amazing book, but it's not just a book. It's a book of books, 66 books that tell the incredible, awesome story of our God. And every story in these pages is building off one another to tell the greater story of reality. You have creation, then the fall, then the exodus, promised land, Jesus coming, Jesus returning. All these things are all coming together to tell us the great story and reveal Jesus to us. And what's amazing about the stories of Scripture is the depth they have. You could study Scripture over and over and over, and you'll never mine all the truths out of the Bible. You'll never exhaust the wisdom that's in Scripture. But what's so beautiful about the story of the Bible is even though it has so much depth, it doesn't leave us clueless, right? The Bible, from its very beginning, gives us clues on the stories and the things that are to come. In fact, what I would say is the beginning makes sense of everything in the Bible. Not just the stories in the Bible, but the stories of everyone. I think Genesis is so important. Genesis reveals so much to us about the stories of Scripture and the stories of our lives. My, my good friend Ryan Coatney, he puts it this way. 
He says that you can hardly open a page of Scripture without needing the book of Genesis to understand it. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. In fact, I would go even further to say that the first three chapters of Genesis serve as an anchor and foundation for everything that you read in the Bible. Kind of, kind of the picture I get when I think of this is, uh, if you were to go to like Party City or some party store and ask for a bouquet of balloons, they wouldn't just blow up these balloons and then let them go, right? What would they do? They would tie all the balloons to a weight or an anchor so that when they arise, they would have something that's holding them together. And in the same way, I think the first three chapters of Genesis serve as that kind of anchor or foundation for us. As you go through the Bible and as stories arise, you can trace those stories back to an anchor that's holding it all together. The observations you make in the beginning of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 really do make sense of everything you read in the Bible and make sense of the stories of your life. And so what I want to do this morning is do a flyover of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Now, I can't do everything, but I want to get at some key observations. We're going to kind of be like detectives this morning. We're going to get some key observations, and as we get these things, we're going to see that it not only connects to our stories, but makes sense of them. And what we're going to see is these insights we're getting from these observations, they're not just psychic hunches. It's truth. These aren't just psychic in nature. They're supernatural. We're going to be seeing how God reveals himself through these observations. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to see how the beginning makes sense of everything. How what you observe and take hold of in the beginning of the scriptures makes sense of the rest of scripture and makes sense of our lives. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can be seated. Because right from just those few words, we have our first observation. And this first one is crucial. And our first observation we get from Genesis is this. God is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. God is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. And this first thing, this is huge, y'all. Because if you don't get this, you're going to miss out on everything else we read. It orients everything you read in Scripture. What we see from just these first few words is that everything comes from God and is about God. God is not just the author of the story. He's the main character. The Bible isn't a story about us. It's a story about God. He's the author and finisher of everything, and he created all things. And we're told just a few verses later how God created all things. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, it says this, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So what we see right at the beginning of Genesis is that God created everything, and the way he created everything was through his words. Now, that seems like an odd thing to highlight. That seems like a random observation, but it's not. 
Because the Bible brings it up over and over and over again. And if you think about it, it is worth noting because if God is an all-powerful being, he didn't have to use his words to create the world. He could have just thought it and it could have come into existence. So why this emphasis on God using his words to create the world? Well, we see in Psalm 33, verse 6, that it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And then if you go fast forward into the New Testament, you see something kind of interesting about the nature of his word. Check this out. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, now that's interesting because it's calling the word a person. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see here the word is said to be a person. And this person was with God, but this word was God. And it says that it was the word in the beginning. Now we know God doesn't have a beginning, so that's a way of saying this word has always been with God, and this word has always been God. Well, who in the world is this word? So a few verses down in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're told this word became flesh, which means this word became a man, and that this word is the only Son of God. Well, who else could it be but Jesus, right? Jesus is the creator. The world was created through him, but he not only created the world, Jesus sustains the world. And this is such an important thing we got to hold on to. If you go to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1 has some of the best uh, writings on the nature of Jesus in all the Bible. But in verses 16 through 17, we're told this, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things, catch this, hold together. He's holding the world together. Uh, if you're taking notes, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 has a similar way of saying it. It says he sustains the world by the word of his might. So Jesus is holding and sustaining the world. And that's important to note for a few reasons. One, it shows us that God didn't just create the world, wind it up, and let it fly. He is invested in our world. But not only that, if Jesus wasn't holding the world by his sovereign hand and power together, it would cease to exist. You and I wouldn't be here. It would just go away. So God, in his power, is sustaining the world. But here's another reason I want to highlight this truth. Is that you can't make sense of a lot of things in our world unless that's true. I'll give you an example. Science does not make sense unless this is true. Now that sounds weird to some people. Because, you know, sometimes in our society we, we pit faith and science against one another. But the opposite is true. You cannot do science without faith. It's impossible. Here's why I say that. Science isn't truth. Science is just a method to get to truth. 
That's all science is. It's a method. It's a method of observing things, repeated testing, theories, hypothesis to get at truth. And you cannot do the scientific method unless you have a few assumptions or faith about the world. Here's just a couple. You can't do science unless you assume that what you see is actually what you see. That your mind and your eyes aren't deceiving you. You also have to assume or have faith that the things that have happened in the past are going to keep happening in the future. I could go on and on with the list, but you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of faith scientists have to have to even do what they do. So I'll give you an example. If I were to jump up, what would happen? I would come, and if I jumped up again, would I come down again? And no matter how many times I jumped up, I'd always come down, right? Why? Because of gravity. Gravity is a law that we're all bound to. And they call it a law because it's universal. Whether I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee, jumping up and down like a fool, or if I'm in Paris, France, jumping up and down like a fool, I'm going to come up and down. Why? Because it's a universal law that what comes up is going to come down by gravitational pull. Now, here's the thing with that. And you could, you could say that for a lot of different things. We know the sun always comes up in the morning and it goes down at night. There's a lot of things in our world that science has come to say is true through testing. But here's the question. What faith makes the most sense of these things? See, for Christians, it makes a lot of sense uh, to come to these truths. We can know what we're seeing is true because we serve a good God who created a good world that doesn't want to deceive us but reveal himself accurately. We also know that what's happened in the past will continue to happen in the future because according to Jeremiah, God has created the world according to a fixed order. You know what that means? That every time I come up, I'm always going to go down. Every morning the sun comes up, then it goes down at night. God's created the world according to a fixed order. So Christians, it's easy for us to do science because our faith makes sense of science. That's why the scientific revolution was started by Christians. Christians started the scientific revolution. Now, for those who don't believe in God, they can do science, but where's their faith? How do they make sense of the things they claim to do? It's blind faith in a lot of ways. So that was a long rabbit trail to say this. It is hard to make sense of a lot of things in our world if God is not the creator and if he is not the sustainer. But Genesis doesn't just tell us that God created everything and that he sustains everything. It also tells us that he owns everything. If you made it, you own it. And God made it all. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this plainly. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. This building we're in, the ground you're standing on, your very soul, it belongs to God. And even if someone denies this truth, it doesn't negate the fact that he owns us. He is the one who started our days, and he knows when those days are going to end. God made all things to make much of him. And this leads to our next observation. So the first thing we see is that God created the world, sustains the world, and owns it. This next one, and this one is huge, y'all. The next observation we make in Scripture is that God created mankind in his image. This one is so, so important. God made mankind in his image. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God, by his word, creates all things. And then when you get to this part in the creation story, there's something unique about mankind. It says that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, I could spend a whole sermon just on that. There's so many books and articles written on what does it mean to be made in the image of God, but I'm just going to summarize it quickly. To be made in the image of God means that we are unique representatives of God on earth. The way I talk about it with my kids is this. It's like we're little mirrors that reflect the glory of God to the world. Or it's like we're little pictures of God's glory on display for all to see. We are little images, bearers of God. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you go through Scripture that talks about being made in the image of God, it makes no caveats. It doesn't say, well, only these type of people are in the image of God, or you're only in the image of God if you're this old or have this ability. No. The Bible says every human being is made in the image of God, which means that every single person who's ever lived and who lives now has inherent dignity value, and worth, and is deserving of respect. This is such a huge belief because wrapped up in this is this idea of human rights and human equality. Now, human equality is like a big buzz thing right now, okay? Human equality is behind pretty much every hot-button issue on the planet. Whether you're talking about racism, whether you're talking about women's rights, whether you're talking about social justice, behind all those things is this idea of human equality and human rights. Again, this is a beautiful truth, but you can't make much sense of all these issues I just mentioned unless God made us in his image. Because think about it. The world says, yeah, human rights, human equality— but the question I always, I always want to ask them is, is, where do human rights come from? Because if you don't believe in God, then human rights and human equality is just made up. You just create it. And if you can just make up human rights, that's a slippery slope because then that means you can manipulate them too. That's why we're having issues today like abortion. That's why it's even possible that that could be a topic today. Because we've seen the manipulation on definitions of what defines a person. Because think about it. If human rights are just something we make up, it's a societal convention, then we can debate on whether, you know, someone's a person, if they're so old or so big or so far along or whatever. But if they're given by God, it changes the story. So when does a person have the image of God? When does a person become a person? Well, if you look through Scripture... It's always part of being a person. The moment you're conceived, you're the image of God, and you have inherent dignity and worth. Look at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This passage and others makes it pretty clear. At the moment of conception, a person is a person. They have the image of God, and they have full worth and dignity. And if you don't 
claim this, it can lead to a lot of issues. Because if someone isn't born with the image of God, if their personhood isn't dictated by that, then you can only determine a person is a person by their ability. And that is a slippery slope, my friends. Because one, who determines who a person is? What abilities they have to have to be a person? And then number two, um, what if after someone is born, they get in a severe car wreck or something and lose those abilities that make them a quote-unquote person? Do they stop being a person? Do you see what I'm saying? It's a slippery slope. If you don't have this truth of the image of God, all talks of human rights and human equality don't make sense. You need God, you need this truth to make sense of everything. But what I love about this is it doesn't just speak to our worth as humans, but it also speaks to our purpose as humans. Look at Genesis 1, 27 through 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Y'all, as God's image bearers, we're made to represent him in all things. Every area of our lives, it says to fill the earth with image bearers and to rule it with God for God. And here's the thing, we're to represent him in all things. That includes in our gender and in our marriages. It's right in the text here. If you go a little further down in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it describes what marriage looks like. It says that a man will leave his father and his mother to be joined to his wife in unity. And I just want to say up front, that's not an example of one type of marriage. That is the definition the Bible gives of marriage. The reason I say it's not just one type is because Remember, God creates all things, defines all things, and owns all things, which means we don't get to define marriage. God does because he made it. And marriage isn't just this random thing. God created marriage with a very specific purpose, and it was to reflect him in a certain way. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us how marriage reflects God in a special way. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 through 33 says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's why. Paul explains. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, talking about marriage, refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. How we define gender and marriage matters because it is a perfect demonstration of the gospel. If you distort marriage, you distort the picture of the gospel it's trying to display. Let me, say, let me just put this plainly. Remember, in the definition that was given of marriage in Genesis, it says that one man will leave his father and mother and come with one wife to be joined as one. That displays the gospel because Jesus left his home in heaven. He lived, died, and rose from the grave. Why? To be united as one to his bride, the church. Guys, we cannot distort this because here's what happens. If you distort it, you miss this truth. When you have faith in Jesus, you are united to Jesus. 
And that's one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible. Because what happens when we're united to Jesus is everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of you. Think about that changes everything. Because when we're united to Jesus, what's true of him is declared true of you. You once were a sinner far from God, but in unity to Jesus, you're declared justified. You once had no home, but when you're united to Jesus, you're declared sanctified. You belong to him. You once were enemies to God, but united to Jesus, you're declared as part of the family of God. Do you see why if you distort how God has created things in the beginning, it messes up the display in the end? So we need to make sure that in all areas of life, whether it's gender, marriage, whatever it is, that we represent God well and how he has told us to represent him. Because again, we're image bearers. We're made to represent the rule and reign of Jesus on earth today. So when you align your life with the revealed way and will of God, you're living according to your purpose. That's what's beautiful about being an image bearer. It means everything you do in life has purpose. When you go to work at your job, you can display Jesus at your job. When you're taking your kids to a ball game, you can display Jesus at a ball game, even when the ump makes a bad call, you know? It doesn't matter what area of life you're in, you represent God and his glory. But when you don't align your life with the way and will of God, you're living incorrectly and off course of your purpose. So my challenge, my encouragement to you, as image bearers, you were made to live for and unto God, to be little mirrors that reflect his glory to the world. But here's the thing. Not everyone lives that way, do they? What happened? God created a good world, good people, made in his image. What went wrong? That leads to our next observation. So number three, we see that mankind rebelled against God and are born sinful and guilty. They're born sinful and guilty. We saw that God created, sustains, and rules the world. He created man in his image, but mankind rebelled against God and are born sinful and guilty. We see this pick up in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Wow. So God makes this beautiful world. Adam and Eve can enjoy the bliss of this creation except one thing. He says they can't eat of this certain tree. Well, a new character comes in to play in chapter 3 of Genesis. It's this crafty serpent, it's Satan, and he tempts Adam and Eve. He makes them question God's truthfulness. They believe the lie, and they eat of the fruit, and sin enters the world. And because sin enters the world, we're shown that mankind is cursed. We see that work gets harder, childbirth gets more painful, and that the heart becomes tainted by sin. A way that this is described is we, are all, we all have a sin nature. We all have a propensity to sin. Romans 6 says that we're enslaved to it. How do we get this sin nature? It's because of Adam and his first sin. 
Romans chapter 5 explains this really well in a bunch of different verses. Verse 12, 14, beginning of 19. I'm going to read them all together. And it says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And I think the beginning of verse 19 makes it so clear. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What these verses are telling us is that Adam represented the human race, and he failed. Now, some people balk at this observation. They don't like this truth. They say it's not fair that Adam represented all of us, and he messed up, so now we're, we, we all have sin natures in us. But just a few uh, things I would say to that is, one, we have people represent us all the time, and we never, you know, bat an eye at it. That's mostly how the world operates. We elect officials to represent our country or our state, or even just on a smaller scale. And on a basketball team, if one player incurs a foul, it not only affects that player, it affects the whole team. So many things in our lives have a representative, and whatever happens to that representative affects everybody. But not only that, Adam was the best representative we could have ever had. Think about what was taking place in the garden. Adam lived in a perfect world. We don't. Adam had never sinned. Adam had everything going for him. He was in the perfect conditions to be the best representative, and he still failed. Do you think you could have done any better? I don't think so. So even the best of us couldn't do it. But also I would say this, just a spoiler alert, even though Adam was a bad representative, a better one's coming. That's a spoiler, we'll get there, don't worry. But if you take the Bible at face value, everyone is tainted by sin. And I'm going to tell you, modern culture hates this. That This is like, ew, okay, when they hear this. Because in our world today, everyone does what they want. Everyone's excused. You live your truth. You follow your heart, right? The good Disney messages and all the shows. Follow your dreams. Follow your heart. But here's the problem. The Bible says that our hearts in Jeremiah 17, 9 are desperately wicked. Ephesians chapter 4 says that the minds of our hearts have been darkened. So following your heart sounds like a bad idea, you know? See, when we say that we can have our truth or follow our heart, It does a few things. It downplays how humans really operate. But then two, it leads to moral instability. Because think about it. If someone over here has their truth and their morals and their right and wrong, and then this person over here has their truths, their morals, their own right and wrong, how can you ever get on to one or the other? You know? If there's not an objective standard of truth by which they can judge their actions, then they can do whatever they want, and you can't say otherwise. That's why we're seeing the mess we're in in our country. So-and-so thinks this is right, so-and-so thinks it's wrong, but who cares unless there's a standard of truth to judge it by? If you don't have the revealed will and way of God as shown in Scripture, then you have nothing by which to build morals off of. Either you make them up, which again, we've already seen, if you make up morals, it can lead to a lot of disasters, or you have to submit to what God has shown us. So we see that we are tainted by sin, 
And the Bible, by the way, says we, every human being has a conscience. They have something in them that tells them what's right and wrong. But the reason it doesn't seem to work all the time is because of this sin problem. Sin has tainted everything about us, our mind, our heart, our conscience. We've turned it upside down. We not only see this curse in our hearts and our minds, we see it in our bodies. That's why we experience sickness. That's why we see disease. But not only is our mind and our bodies cursed, but the world at large is cursed. Romans chapter 8 says the world is held in corruption to sin. That's why we have pandemics. That's why we have natural disasters. Do you see how this observation makes sense of everything? If you don't have a doctrine of sin, it's hard to make sense of all the messed up stuff we see in the world. But I got some bad news for y'all. Not only does the Bible say that we're cursed by sin, but it says we're guilty in deserving a punishment of sin. Bible says in Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the payment, the punishment for sin is death. And that's eternal punishment and separation from God's blessing. And to make even bad news worse, it says that we can't save ourselves from the curse of sin. We can't save ourselves from the guilt of sin. The, the, the chasm's too wide. The price is too heavy, okay? We cannot pay it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says your works can't do enough to outweigh your bad. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, that leads to our last observation. We've seen God created the world. We see that he created man in his image. Mankind distorted that image because they rebelled against God and are sinful. But here's the hope. Fourth observation. God promises salvation through his son. God promises salvation through his son. And yes, you see this even in the first three chapters of Genesis. See, there's this tiny little verse in Genesis. If you're reading too quickly, you'll miss it. But it's kind of like a key to everything in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll give you context here. So what happens after Adam and Eve sin, they eat of the fruit, God pronounces judgments and cursings on all the parties involved. He pronounces curses on the woman, on man, on the ground, and on the serpent, on Satan. And this is the curse, the judgment he gives to Satan. Listen to this. He says, I will put enmity, which is hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What this verse is telling us is that part of the curse is that Adam or Eve and, this, and Satan are always going to be at odds. Even their children and their children's children are going to be at odds. But God predicts somewhere in the future, one of Eve's offspring is going to crush Satan's head. Going to deal the final blow. But who is this coming seed, this coming offspring that's going to crush Satan? We're told in 1 John 3.8 exactly who that is. 1 John 3.8 tells us who the serpent-crushing Messiah is. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed, meaning he came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus came. He was the promised offspring. 
all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And for the rest of the Bible, generation after generation, is waiting and longing for this Messiah. And he comes, and y'all, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. We're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, I read the first part of this, but I saved the second part of this verse for right now. Here's what it says. For just as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Jesus is the better Adam. He's the better representative. And where we distorted the image of God in sin, he's restoring the image of God in us through his spirit. We're told this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God made the world. He made us in his image. We distorted that image. But praise God for the grace of Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose, and he is restoring that image here and now. That's what we get just in the first three chapters of Genesis. Isn't it beautiful? What you can observe in the beginning, how it makes sense of everything. The promises made in Genesis and how God fulfills them later on. The beginning makes sense, not just of all the stories of the Bible, but everything in our lives. So with that said, I want to close with just a few questions to have you think about. I want you to ask yourself, what does your story look like? Who's the main character of your story? What's the centerpiece of your story? And are there elements of your story that don't make sense? What does it look like? Who's the main character, the centerpiece? And are there elements of it that don't make sense? Because in all those questions, what I would plead with you this morning is that you would look to Christ. He was the foretold hero, the centerpiece of the story that makes sense of everything. See, what we've, deser- what we've observed this morning, as I said in the beginning, they're not just nice observations or psychic hunches. This is truth. It's true that God created the world and holds everything together, and he owns it. He's our king. He made us in his image to represent him in every area of our lives. It's true that we've sinned, and even here and now, on this side of glory, our hearts are tainted by sin. But praise God that God promised his son to save us. And day by day, we are being reshaped more and more into the likeness of Jesus, till one day, as 1 John 3 promises, we will see him face to face, and we will see him as he is. So here is my plea to you. If he is not the centerpiece of your story, if he is not the hero of your story, if you're not trusting him and living for him, if even if your beginning didn't start with him, that your ending would. That you would live for him, lean on him, trust him, follow him, and make much of him. Because I tell you, as we've seen in this beginning, it's what all of our stories are supposed to be about. Our creator, our redeemer, our savior.